0: Hello everyone, welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson and I'll be your host as we explore the sometimes dark and treacherous paths that lead around Delmarva. Even though today we will be looking more at the pathways in the sky as we'll be covering an aviation incident. I first heard about this incident when I was watching something from the Air Safety Institute. Though in terms of aviation, you don't really think of Delaware when you think about any type of commercial aviation. We do have Dover Air Force Base, but you know it's not a commercial center. So any of the normal you know, aircraft incidents that you may hear about in Delaware usually have to do with what's called general aviation which is not the practice of having say a large boeing or airbus um, like a commercial airport we have the smaller airports that kind of dot the communities in the area also in a lot of the cases that i cover here it's very difficult to find information about the victim or victims um, in the case or the event but in this particular incident, we actually have probably more information about the pilot of the plane than we do of you know, the actual incident itself. So this will allow us to get more of a backstory and understanding of some of the thoughts um, and actions that the pilot may have taken. The pilot in this crash is actually a very well-known and well-renowned surgeon in the medical field, and while exploring this case, I actually came across another crash of another pilot who was also a doctor, and though I normally don't cover the huge well-known cases um, on the you know, on either this podcast or my other one, Mystifyingly Missing. So I actually did an episode on Mystifyingly Missing about the um, other pilot as well, who you may recognize the last name, um, Richard Rockefeller. And yes, of those Rockefellers. And that particular accident did have some parallels to this one, as well as another more famous accident aviation incident. So I will link the um, other podcast in the description of this episode. I will be recording that one directly after I'm done with this. So depending on how quickly, um, you know, you listen to this one, it may or may not be up um, by the time you're done with this particular episode. I also found that There were a number of aviation incidents that did involve doctors, mostly as the pilots, but I did find some heartbreaking cases, too. One where, you know, doctors, um, they were the ones killed or injured by the crash, but they were even just in their own backyard. So I will be looking at those for future episodes, um, mostly, though, for the mystifyingly missing podcast, and I'm abbreviating it mystifyingly missing because the whole title is mystifyingly missing true crime and thought provoking events, because it covers quite a few different types of cases, kind of like the same cases that we cover here. Just a few things before we start into the episode. Um, While I'm recording this, we are getting very close to 3000 downloads. And so that's kind of exciting. I just wanted to mention that. Also, um, I don't necessarily like doing this, but I do have a PayPal link in the description. And that's because sometimes I'm either looking at different resources or as I use newspapers.com, that's a subscription service. We do have to pay occasionally for those types of resources. You know, I'll continue, of course, doing the podcast no matter what. It's just I have access to more sources um, with some of the cases by having to pay for those resources. In covering this um, episode as usual, there will be discussions of events that some people may find troubling or triggering. In this particular case, it has to do with the death of an individual. So I just wanted to let everybody know that. And with that being said, let's begin today's episode. When covering different types of accidents, there's usually one, more than one factor that leads to the accident itself. It may be a mistake made in calculations, a misjudgment about the weather, mechanical factors, and not to mention just the human factor. And while, yes, today I'm talking about it in aviation Really, whenever there's any major accident where there's oversight, you know, a lot of oversight as far as the individual and the machinery being used, then it's usually more than just one thing. So even when looking at things such as structural failures, it's usually something to do with either calculations, miscommunication combination of things that lead to the actual tragedy. And so in the case of more commercial aviation, there's so many redundancies built into an aircraft um, that if something goes wrong, if a system happens to fail, there's usually a backup or something that can be done to help mitigate that. Um, Plus, there's also a second pilot who's monitoring information And is there to pick up any mistakes, hopefully, if the other pilot does make any. When looking at today's case, there is one pilot in a small general aviation aircraft. And general aviation is really just aviation where it's not related to commercial flight. You'll usually hear that in terms of the smaller planes such as Pipers or Cessnas um, that people fly So when there's just one individual checking his own or her own work, basically, that increases some of the risk itself. You don't have that second set of eyes or the second set of ears to run something by or to discuss things. So just from my perspective, as someone who does not have a pilot's license, looking into general aviation, when there is a single pilot you know that concerns me the most. Um, also, I did hear a while back that one of the major aircraft manufacturers was looking at having a single person cockpit for commercial flights. Um, but I personally am completely against that because you never know when there may be a medical emergency, or if you know someone just does need that second set of ears and eyes to help them with difficult situations. Today's incident involved just a single pilot in a Cessna and that was a Cessna Aero. So we're not talking about a large aircraft at all. The person flying the plane that day was Dr. Clifford Turin. He was a man who had impacted so many people, both on Delmarva in the communities that he had worked throughout his career as well as internationally, as he was an internationally renowned surgeon. He was flying to Delaware so that he could perform surgery on the following day. So let's hear a little bit about the life of Dr. Turin before this incident occurred. So a lot of the information that I found comes from his obituary, as well as other news articles and you know pretty much memorial pages or articles written about him. There was more information, like I said earlier, in articles that I found than we would normally know about most pilots or air crash victims. Dr. Turin accomplished a lot in his relatively short life. He was fifty five years old at the time of this incident. And that's actually a year younger than my husband. So it puts some things in perspective for me. He accomplished more than what many people could expect to accomplish in two to three lifetimes. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, and graduated high school in 1975 from the Wheatley School in East Williston, New York. He later went on to Johns Hopkins University and graduated from there in 1979. Johns Hopkins is in Maryland. It's on the western side of Maryland, so over the Bay Bridge um, in Baltimore. And I've been there a few times for a doctor's appointment, so it's a couple hours away from where I live. So he he probably did have a general idea of the area um, prior to you know, even starting to work in Delaware. He did eventually stay in the Baltimore area for a while, so we'll look at that in just a few moments. He got his medical degree from the State University of New York, otherwise known as SUNY, Upstate Medical University. If you hear the term SUNY or State University of New York, those are colleges throughout New York State that do offer, you know, undergraduate education, and sometimes they do actually focus towards one career path. So this was um, one of the universities that he attended. He did complete his residency at the Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and that's in New Hyde Park, New York. He was, as I said, flying towards Delaware or to Delaware um, to perform surgery on the following morning he was at this time a trauma surgeon at Bay Health Medical Center in Dover. His specialty was orthopedics. If you're from Delaware or may have visited Delaware recently, you may be familiar with Bay Health. At the time of this incident, they were more in Kent County, which is the middle county of Delaware, but they are starting to expand some towards Sussex County, having a hospital in each county and that's pretty important because in a lot of the locations, um, especially in Sussex County, it can sometimes be quite a distance before you can get to a hospital that really caters to your needs. Um, just to give an example, I have a family member who's going through some health issues and you know we've been taking him back and forth to doctor's appointments but we're actually having to go to Maryland for most of his visits and his surgery will also be in Maryland. So to have a medical I guess you would say institution where it's more than just one location is important to a lot of areas in especially southern Delaware. It can also be difficult at times to keep doctors at certain hospitals because the hospitals individually may not necessarily have access to all of the resources that larger hospitals do. So working with an institution that has multiple locations can sometimes help keep doctors in the area because they have access to more resources, as well as the possibility of a patients being able to visit the two different locations to cater to what their specific needs are without having to leave the state. Having a doctor like Dr. Turin would have been a boon to any um, medical facility, I believe. He had quite an extensive history. Um, before joining Bay Health, um, he had worked in a few different hospitals. Um, he worked at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, again on the other side or western side of Maryland, and you know, shock trauma is one of the bigger hospitals um, or medical facilities where if you hear that someone is going to shock trauma, that means it is a very serious accident. He spent about four to five years at Maryland shock trauma as a fellow, you know, completing a fellowship. Um, after he completed that, he went into the Navy and he actually served as chief of the orthopedic trauma service at Portsmouth Naval Regional Medical Center. Um, Once he had finished his time there um, in the Navy, he still remained a reservist. He worked part-time for about three or four years as a consultant still with shock trauma, but then worked there as a full-time chief of orthopedics from 1993 to 2009. So altogether, he was there for more than 20 years or so working at Shock Trauma, you know, again, filling in the services of the Chief of Orthopedic Trauma. He also served as the Director of Orthopedic Traumatology Fellowship Program, and in that role, he impacted an untold number of residents that he worked with within that fellowship program. He was leading them to be able to serve others, therefore making his impact more prevalent and known in the healthcare field. Internationally, too, he served as a senior trustee of the AO Foundation and president of the AO North American membership. What the AO Foundation is, is a nonprofit organization of trauma surgeons that work within um, this nonprofit to improve the health care of those with musculoskeletal injuries or illnesses. The foundation itself has worked on developing some of the rods um, that you may see with someone who has an orthopedic um, fracture or needs orthopedic surgery, as well as developing some of the tools or instruments that can be used in Those um, surgeries. So, this foundation was geared towards those who needed the benefit of musculoskeletal services um, and surgeries. Now, I mentioned previously that he was part of the U.S. Navy Reserve after his time in the Navy. Um, While he was there in the Naval Reserve, he was a commander in the Medical Corps. And when he was active, he also worked as a medical officer for the Navy SEALs. He seemed to be someone who thrived under pressure and really excelled when he was. He has quite a few more roles that he filled. And I'm just going to read directly from um, the next part verbatim from his obituary. So I'm not missing anything. Um, So, quote, Contributed as a dive team member and instructor, firefighter, and fire officer. He was a former special duty U.S. marshal and led development of the tactical EMS program for the National Capital Region Anti-Terrorism Task Force. And also with all of these accomplishments, his medical career also led him to some of the highest profile patients, including serving as a presidential medical support team member for President George H.W. Bush, whether or not he, oh sorry, end quote, um, whether he actually ever treated George H.W. Bush, it doesn't say, but he was at the level where his services would have been called upon if needed to treat that, that time President of the United States um he also did appear on two television shows even though they were you know really geared towards the same thing um both were from 2004 and one was called critical hour and the other one was called critical hour shock trauma so it really does seem like in his 55 years he really packed a lot of activity and accomplishments in those you know years really accomplishing so much that many people may just never um, you know hope to accomplish and knowing this about him may give you a better idea of what he's able to handle and you know just his his persona under pressure does he like I said it seemed like he thrived under pressure um, and I hate to use the term adrenaline junkie because as seeing in the medical field, you know, it's you don't really want to hear that term. But in other reading, it did say that he liked extreme skiing. And so it just seems like he needs that adrenaline to keep going. Just want to make it clear. I've, of course, never met um, the doctor, but just reading through everything, he just seems to really have needed that pressure in order to, you know, reach his fullest potential. He would also need to know how to approach different types of patients and their families, knowing that a lot of times they're going through one of the most traumatic experiences of their lives, you know, whether it was a car accident or another injury that they had that could affect the rest of their lives. So, He was a well-rounded man within the medical community, as well as being able to work with patients themselves. To get a little closer to the time of the incident, because you may be asking, okay, all of this is well and good, but how does he get to Bay Health? Um, In 2009, um, he did leave shock trauma and moved to Georgia. He worked on developing a residency program um, for an orthop- orthopedic program in Georgia. And that was at the medical center of Central Georgia in Macon. Um, however, in 2011 he did begin working with Bay Health in Dover. Um, at the time of this incident, Dr. Turin was married. He had two sons and two stepdaughters and a stepson, as well as step-grandchildren. Um, he loved baseball, And a doctor that he worked with, a Dr. Scalia, said that he used to say that the Super Bowl is what you do between World Series and spring training. So that's a quote from one of his friends. Um, He also adding to a rivalry between Dr. Scalia and Dr. Turin. Um, His friend does go back to um, New York. And Dr. Turn was a Mets fan while he himself was a Yankees fan. So, you know, um, I did go to college in New York. And sometimes to hear those who were, you know, from New York talking about the Mets and Yankees. Yeah, that was a rivalry right there. So, you know, he was very active. Um, like I said, he liked extreme skiing Um, He had even learned how to recently um, rope cattle, like a rodeo, you know, when you're on horseback and you you see somebody roping cattle, he had just learned to do that. So I just wanted to give this information to show him beyond his medical field that he was someone, you know, who liked to do, um, you know, other kind of pressure filled activities in a sense, Um, because at least to me, if... I'm on horseback, my whole concentration would be on just staying on the horse, frankly. So he had that confidence in himself to take those risks and learn new things, even, you know, close to the time of his death at the age of 55. He, though, would need to be very meticulous in all of these roles um, as a skier, as someone who does this type of sports like the rodeo he's going to want to look ahead he has to be aware of more than just his surroundings at just that very moment he needs to be able to look further down the ski slope or look at the surroundings you know while he's on horseback to try to maintain a level of safety so it's not just looking at the exact moment where you are, um, as with many things, we have to look beyond and try to anticipate what may be coming up. And the same applied in his work life in that he would need to be very fastidious, meticulous, detail-oriented to make sure he's covering all potential outcomes and reviewing everything with the patient, with the rest of the medical staff, A friend of his, um, a man that he had known for more than 20 years while living in New York, said about Dr. Turin that he was, quote, a very meticulous man, and the incident that took his life was something that he could not possibly have foreseen in that dense fog. He was an unflappable man, end quote. So a friend that he'd known for quite an extensive period of time, commented on whether or not he thought he could have foreseen the situation. We will you know, discuss the particular situation, of course, and see if maybe it was something we think he might have been able to foresee with this quote being said before the actual um, NTSB report was made. So his friend is looking at it as what he knew at the time shortly after the accident and going into it, looking at Dr. Torren's history, um, saying that he didn't believe that the doctor could have foreseen what may have happened. Another um, person that he knew, a colleague and friend of his was um, a Dr. Andrew Pollock, who is a professor and acting head of orthopedics at the University of Maryland Medical School. And again, University of Maryland Medical School is really a great hospital. So, you know, even though here on the Eastern Shore, we don't have some of the major trauma centers, we do or are able to have access to some of the others if we go to the other side of Maryland. Again, having been there myself or having other people um, taken to those facilities, they are very very highly regarded and rated facilities. So Dr. Pollack said, quote, "Um, orthopedic trauma is putting bones back together. And sometimes the cases are easy and some difficult. But Cliff always knew what to do. Cliff could fix problems others had difficulty with and could teach them how to do it. It was easy for him to get along with the staff and operating room staff. He was the happiest when he was in the operating room and busy and getting a lot of things accomplished, end quote. So again, this is just describing him as someone who worked well under pressure. Um, you know, he, as I did mention previously, he did teach as well. Um, and he was described in his personality as being larger than life, as being jovial and extremely hardworking working I think we can see that he was extremely hardworking in all of the accomplishments that um, he had. Some uh, further information, or maybe observations, is a good word to use, it came from Dr. Scalia. And he said that Dr. Turing could see the big picture, that he had the ability to, uh, quote, get to the essence of a problem quickly. He was dedicated, worked hard, and always did the right thing, end quote. So to me, looking at this says that he's a man who could look at a problem, you know, again, more than just the current or right there in front of him, and look beyond that to see other factors that may affect that goal um, in the case of his career, then fixing the problem, um, the break, the fracture, or the trauma to the best of his ability and looking ahead and knowing what issues may impact that he would have to do a lot of things simultaneously in order to be able to accomplish that. Now we're going to get into the accident itself. Um, This is the smaller plane. It's, you know, when pilots are in say, let's use Cessna or Piper, um, the general aviation pilots can either be um, certified as either visual flight rules or instrument flight rules. So we're going to go over a few different terms that will, you know, help us understand the um, accident a little better than just, you know, going over a report with all of these terms that we may not be as familiar with. Myself, you know, I know I had to really look up the meaning of the terms. Um, I was somewhat familiar with them because I do watch and read a lot of aviation um, shows or articles. However, you know, a lot of those have to do with the larger aircraft. So just getting into you know some of the information here with the visual flight rules, that really is what it sounds like you're a pilot that works visually, you're not going to be flying at night, you're not going to be flying when you know it's going to be completely foggy and overcast, because you won't be able to know where you're going, basically. With instrument flight rules, that's when you're certified um, to use your instruments to detect your altitude, um, to know where you are, and be able to fly without necessarily having a focal point that you can look at and see. So of course then with instrument flight rules um, the pilots have a lot more um, pressure on them at times. They also have more requirements that they have to meet in order to be able to be qualified as an instrument flight. In terms of equipment you will also hear talk about the ILS system. That's an instrument landing system that is, quote, a precision radio navigation system that provides short range guidance to aircraft to allow them to approach a runway at night or in bad weather, end quote. So it's a very detailed system where a pilot can um, kind of latch on to the system, for lack of a better descriptor, and that will guide them into the runway or onto the runway um, so that they don't actually have to have a complete visual of lining up with the runway prior to seeing it. So you can see how this is important when flying in bad weather. Um, There's also the WAAS, that stands for Wide Area Augmentation System, um, and Dr. Turin- Did also use a GPS system. And what the WAAS or WAS um, was is a quote, air navigation aid developed by the Federal Aviation Administration to augment the Global Positioning System or GPS with the goal of improving its accuracy, integrity, and availability. So this is, you know, kind of an extension or, um, Add on to the GPS. Uh, it may not necessarily be in every plane, but it was in Dr. Turin's plane. So um, it's something to remember when going through, you know, what occurred on that day of the accident. Um, next, we have the ceiling. What the ceiling is, is basically the height above ground level, and that's called the AGL. Um, where basically the clouds are at their lowest so you know just think of it really as the term implies it's a ceiling when you look up from being you know at a lower altitude when you look up is there a cloud like a a whole cloud system that will keep you from seeing above that um, there are a couple different types of ceilings whether it be broken or overcast. Broken means that yes the cloud ceiling is there but it doesn't quite cover the whole sky. Um, The descriptor that I found said it was usually between five-eighths to seven-eighths of the sky. Um, It's overcast when pretty much the whole sky is covered so you may hear that throughout the episode as well. And these are just some of the more important terms that I thought it would be um, important to know in terms of the accident that day. Okay, now we are actually getting into the flight itself. For much of the information that I'm going to be covering, I'll be using the NTSB um, report itself, augmented by some other articles that were on aviation sites that helped kind of break it down into, you know, a better understanding for those of us who may not have that aviation background. We will actually discuss a few different cities or towns um, as the doctor is flying over the eastern shore of Delmarva. So I will try to explain just in general um, terms where they are as that will have an impact on what occurs. Okay, So the flight um, proceeded as follows. Um, it was a Sunday, January 13th of 2013. Um, the estimated flight time that Dr. Turin had estimated was about three hours and 45 minutes. Um, he had the, fueled the plane up completely, and it had about five and a half hours worth of fuel. So just looking at that time, you know, it's it looks to be almost two hours. So at an hour and 45 minutes of extra fuel. Just while this doesn't say it anywhere in any of the articles that I read, I'm thinking as well, you know, fuel can burn at different um, levels depending on the situation that you're in. So if he's using, you know, say more, um, you know, more power to say, try to fly against the wind or he has a lot of resistance that can burn up more fuel. So it's estimated at about five and a half hours, but it may or may not be exactly five and a half hours. He did file a flight plan using IFR rules. He knew that he would be needing instrument flight rules um, because he had checked the weather earlier that morning and it did show that there was expected bad weather throughout the region. He filed his alternate airport as Baltimore, Washington International, otherwise known as BWI. To give you an idea of where he was flying into, he expected, expected to land in Middletown, Delaware um, at Summit Airport, which was a little bit above Dover. So it's not exactly the center of Delaware, but it's pretty close. It's before you get into the northernmost county of Newcastle County. BWI is again on the other side, the western side of Maryland, which is, I'm going to say about two hours. I drive slow, I, so I will admit that. Um, some people may be able to get to and from in less than two hours, but for me, it, I'm going to say it's about a two-hour drive. So that's, that was a little bit of a distance um, as far as his alternate airport. Um, he was beginning the flight from Sandersville, Georgia, um, and he needed to be in Delaware to perform surgery at 10 a.m. the following morning. He left Georgia between 1.30 and 2 p.m. Eastern time. When he did check on the weather conditions earlier that day, He was told that at times the ceiling could be as low as 400 feet. So that's not really extremely high. However, there weren't really going to be a lot of mountains or things like that. that he may come across when flying, you know, to Delaware. We're pretty flat. If you've ever been here, you definitely know that. Um, Visibility could be as low as two miles. There would be rain for a lot of the trip once he made it to, um, you know, more of the eastern shore area, and a lot of times the weather was described as a mist or misting. Um, however, beginning at about 4 p.m., the weather was expected to start to get better, so at the, that time, the ceiling was thought to um, be able to rise to about 1,000 feet, and so he tried to make his arrival time correspond with the better weather that was expected to hit Delmarva. Um, at this point in time, he'd had about, almost 600 hours flying. So while it's not a huge amount of flying, it is still pretty substantial at that point as a private pilot, as well as him having the IFR training. Now, as he first approached Middletown Summit Airport, He was advised by the air traffic controller that the plane just prior to him had missed approaches and so that pilot then diverted to a Wilmington airport and again he had to divert or didn't succeed in landing at Wilmington and had to divert to Philly. So given this information and the conditions in the area instead of diverting to Baltimore he began to ask some questions asking about other airports in the area. Instead of going to Baltimore, then he decided to go to Salisbury, Maryland. That would mean he'd actually have to turn around and fly south. Um, Middletown, like I said, is in the middle county of Delaware. Um, It's though closer to the northern part of the county. So he would need to fly back through Kent and Sussex counties, and land then in Salisbury, and that's about 53 miles south that he would have to go. He requested or made this diversion at about four forty-nine p.m. He was told that the ceiling at Salisbury was 400 feet overcast, meaning that the cloud cover was consistent, it wasn't broken, and had a visibility of eight miles so by the time he turned around and headed back he was about 15 miles south of Middletown and it was now 4.50. Times are important on this. It was about 5.40 when he approached Salisbury, but the weather was not as good as he thought it would be. He did try to land twice using um the GPS and remember it was augmented by the WAAS, but he missed the approach both times. I'm just going to insert my opinion here a little bit. I have to wonder if he was, after the second miss at least, starting to feel a little less confident or concerned. Even with his ability to think and stay calm under pressure, it seems as though he may have been making mistakes that someone who was as meticulous as him normally would not have made. First, Salisbury was ILS enabled. It had the instrument landing system, which was more accurate than a GPS system. Also, though, the the GPS approach has a minimum descent altitude. I apologize that I missed that term a little bit earlier, but the minimum descent altitude, that's the lowest altitude um, at which you can descend on final approach or when you're circling into land. The minimum descent altitude at Salisbury was 306 feet above ground level. However, Dr. Turin was at 581 feet when he made the decision to terminate that attempt. With the second one, it was even more substantial. He was at 928 feet, and even though he was aligned with the runway, he then started to veer to the right and went down to 529 feet, and then at that point decided to terminate the approach there. So again, at this point, he's working with the GPS and he said that he felt his GPS was not working correctly. But remember here too, on these two approaches, instead of getting down lower to be more in line with what the overcast ceiling was, he decided to stop or abort the landing attempt before he even got down to the minimums. After the second attempt, instead of asking for an ILS approach, he started to ask about information um, on other airports. He asked if there was one that was easier, and he was told about Sussex County Airport, which is in Georgetown. That means he would start flying north again into Sussex County, Delaware. Um, Now, I've had co-workers um, because... There was an office we had in Buffalo, New York, so they would sometimes have to fly down to Delaware, and they would normally fly into Salisbury, but there was a time they had to divert to Georgetown, and they just kind of you know, thought it was night and day. While well, Salisbury is not huge by any means. It has a lot more, um, I guess you'd say modernization. It's more of a hub of activity when you compare it to Georgetown. Georgetown is, you know, really a smaller general aviation airport. So he was leaving Salisbury, which had an ILS approach to go to an airport that did not. And while, yes, he would have been leaving Salisbury, but he would have been flying back into weather that he had just left. So he'd been in Middletown, which was north He flew south to Salisbury, and now he's turning around to fly north again. The weather, if not exactly the same, would have at least been very comparable. um, Because he's flown the whole distance, he would have been familiar with the weather to and from, even crossing over into Georgetown. He may not have flown directly over Georgetown, but still, you know, it's in the same path, And you know the weather is not great in either of the two locations you've just been at. At this point, it's about 553. Um, You know, the ceiling was about 700 and was overcast. So that means the consistent ceiling. And 553 is quite a long time from when he requested the diversion from Middletown Um, Just to go back to that, it was about 4.50 when he started to head towards Salisbury. Um, It was 5.40 when he approached Salisbury. And then after he decided to, you know, just stop trying to land at Salisbury, it was 5.53. So we're looking at, you know, more than an hour from when he left Middletown. Something to also remember is... It's not just, you know, 20 seconds to try to make the approach. They would sometimes have to fly a pattern. Um, They have to line up with the runway. So it's not just, okay, well, there's flight time, but then it only took 20 seconds or 30 seconds for him to realize he wasn't going to make the the landing. So we're now an hour outside of his range um, from when he thought he would be landing um, compared to when he approached Middletown. So a full hour. The ceiling was at about 700 feet and overcast. Um, So he headed towards Georgetown. However, as he approached though, ATC advised him that weather had been updated and it showed the overcast ceiling of now 300 feet. That's from 700 to 300. So that's a huge difference. But he did continue on to Georgetown, and he got there at around 616. Um, He established the approach. Um, The minimum approach was 310 above ground level um, for his GPS, because remember, Georgetown doesn't have GPS. Um, And even though it was 310 feet, he did take the plane down to 250, but he missed the approach. We're now at 6.26. He is running very low on fuel. You might even say critically. He did advise ATC that he was running low and requested the same approach again. So he tried originally to, you know, time his flight so that he would be hitting Maryland, I'm sorry, Delaware, Middletown when weather was getting better. The weather was not getting better when he thought it would be. Looking at the times again, he thought it would be about three hours and 45 minutes for the flight with five and a half hours worth of fuel. But it didn't happen that way. So air traffic control now realizing that if he did not make this next approach, he would need to go to another airport. Um, They asked if he wanted to try an alternate airport. He asked if there was anything easier than Georgetown. The next available airport was going north again towards Middletown, though he would be aiming towards um, Delaware Airport, I'm sorry, Delaware Air Park in Dover. Now this is not Dover Air Force Base, but it uses the same weather information And they advised of a visibility of 10 miles with a ceiling of 500 overcast. So it wasn't quite as foggy. You could have a 10 mile visibility. So he turned or he headed towards Dover and he set up an approach to Dover Air Park. As he was getting there, he did ask ATC if there was anything or if he could land in Dover Air Force Base. Um, ATC's response was standard, that unless it was an emergency, there's not a way that you can land at the Air Force Base. I mean, that does make sense. You you don't want a lot of planes landing on Dover Air Force Base, because I'm sure there's a lot that goes into that. However, there was that caveat, unless it's an emergency. Um, No you know, government Air Force Base is going to turn someone away who's in an emergency. I've even heard about it in bases that are in other countries that if there's an emergency, they will offer assistance. So there was that option for him. But at 635, he was cleared for the approach to Dover um, Air Park. At 641, though, He declared an emergency, stating that he was completely out of fuel. ATC then provided information for the ILS at Dover Air Force Base, but at this point the plane was only about 2,000 feet mean sea level and had actually gotten past the Air Force Base. So this means he would have to turn around and go back towards DAFB. He was about six miles out from AF, the Dover Air Force Base, um, at 644, so this is about three minutes after he declared the emergency. ATC, looking at him through the radar, um, told him that the plane was going in the right direction, and Dr. Turin was expected to land on Runway 14. But Dr. Turin's last words over his radio was that he was, quote, on tower right now, end quote. But at 6.45 and 33 seconds, his GPS noted that his airplane was at about 500 feet, three miles away from the Air Force Base. He no longer appeared on radar. Dover ATC contacted authorities to search for the plane. A man who lived in the area described that he heard a plane near his house. As reported in the Dover Post, Matthew Davis, who was 23 years at the time, said that the plane did in fact fly over his house. He said, quote, the engine quit, then started, then sputtered and quit again, end quote. To put some of this in perspective, the accident took place at around 6.45. After he approached Salisbury, which is about a one-hour drive between Salisbury and Dover, um, depending on traffic patterns, which route you take, how fast you go, it's still about an hour driving. So he actually spent about as much time in the air and trying to make you know different approaches than it would have been if he had driven. The amount of that time is very, very important looking at this crash. Now, searchers tried to locate the plane. It took approximately two hours before they did so. It was found about two miles north of DAFB. Um, even though he had received the directions or vector, vectors towards Dover, he wasn't able to make it and he was found within the wreckage deceased. The plane itself was upside down when they found it and had hit a number of trees during the crash. When the investigators looked at the debris field, it was about 150 feet long, so really that's not tremendously long in my opinion. I'm looking at it, you know, again as kind of a civilian, but when you look at a plane that theoretically should have been going faster Um, for it to hit something and just break apart over a series of 150 feet, to me says it was not going very fast, which, of course, if it had no fuel, it was not going to be going very fast. The debris path broke down into that at the very beginning was the um, right wing tip and a right flap and then at about a hundred feet there was the actual right wing and part of the vertical stabilizer or stabilator I'm sorry that at the end of the debris field was the cockpit with Dr. Turin still inside. The main damage to the plane came from the impact to the trees. Um, the cockpit was severely damaged by what they determined as three main strikes. Um, there was a complete fuel exhaustion, really, so there was no subsequent fire. Um, once the crash occurred, a lot of times if there's a crash and there's still fuel on board, that is one of the biggest concerns um, about a fire starting. When the investigators looked at the crash, there was only about a half a gallon of fuel left in the main tank. And, you know, just, you know, knowing about other plane crash incidents and even thinking about my own vehicle, if you get down to a half a gallon of fuel, you're really pushing it. Um, And then when looking at a plane, because, you know, it's, it's trying to be level, but it may not always be level the fuel tank may not be able to get to that very last part. And I'm thinking at half a gallon left, it's not going to be able to really catch on to any of the fuel in order to be able to put it into the engine. Um, If you myself, I'm just thinking of like a spray bottle that has a hose or a nozzle in it. When you get down to that bottom part, unless you tilt it so that the end of the nozzle tube is within the liquid you're not going to be getting the rest of it out and if it's a nozzle that doesn't bend and goes straight down it's not going to be able to pick up enough of the fluid to bring it up that's kind of to me the first thing that I think of um, you know is how sometimes you have to kind of fight to get to that last bit of liquid um, at the end of the nozzle And even though this is on a much larger scale, it's still kind of the same principle. So there were a lot of working parts to this flight. And while about the first three hours and 20 minutes or so was uneventful, the last leg took much longer than it should have. The NTSB does approach investigations looking at more than just one thing, of course, So the first, or one of the first things they want to look at is the pilot himself. They look at aspects of a personal life, which, you may look at whether they may have been fatigued. Was there any, you know, stress that they may have been um, going through at that time that they normally wouldn't be? But a main, the main part is looking at the qualifications of the pilot. Now, as I said, he did have the certificates for a single-engine plane, but he did have his instrument rating as well. He had had those instrument ratings for about two and a half years prior to the accident, so it's not something that was too new to him. Um, He also had his medical exam for his pilot's license and had passed that about a year and a half prior to the incident. So, you know, just to show as far as general aviation... They don't just say take a look at you when you first get your license and then say that's it um, almost like they do with our driver's license you know they really just check your eyesight for the most part you know with pilots license they do these checks and you have to have that examination um, to make sure there's aren't there aren't any health issues that may contribute to an accident he had um, almost 600 hours of flying time it was 598. Um, he had 77 hours using instrument flying. They also look at the time period immediately prior to the accident. Um, they want to make sure that, say, someone's not rusty. Um, you know, if you go back to doing something that you haven't done in a long time, it takes you a little while to you know kind of catch up or catch on again. So he had flown 15 hours in the previous 30 days. Um, so he he had been flying recently it wasn't though it had been months they then look at the plane now this plane was older being manufactured in 1970 but planes do tend to last quite a long time i've even um come across planes that were you know built in the 1950s or earlier that are still being used and there are pilots who actually restore the older planes and sometimes race them or take them to shows. So, you know, men, or planes that are very, very old, even decades old, are still around and in pliable condition. Um, this is even seen with the larger airliners. Um, the plane itself had been inspected only about a year and a half prior to the crash. So again, you know, pretty recently that it had been inspected. Um, It had been, or the plane itself had over 5,600 flying hours, but the engine itself had 950 hours. So that had been replaced and overhauled. It also had the GPS system added with the WAAS. Along with this, he had a handheld GPS system. The next and probably biggest factor that we will see in this case was weather. That pretty much led the whole flight after he made it to Delmarva. He had checked the weather prior to taking off, but he did check it at just around 10 a.m., so it was not immediately before he took off. Um, he did get weather information, though, from more than one airport. airport. Um, so while he was expecting to fly into Middletown Summer, Summit Airport, In an indirect way, he received information about the Wilmington Airport because he knew that another pilot had not been able to land there. So even though he didn't have specific information, he knew that it probably wasn't great either if a pilot was not able to land there. Um, The weather information that he received, though, said that at 4 o'clock, it was supposed to be getting better. But it didn't. Um, Since we went through a lot of the weather information individually while he was, you know, asking for information and um, diverting, I'm not going to repeat all of it again, other than to say that it was not what he had expected. Now, once all of the pieces of the puzzle was assembled or were assembled and realizing that Yes, there were varying degrees of bad weather throughout any of the approaches that he made. The NTSB indicated that the main reason that this accident occurred was because he did not fly, quote, the two GPS approaches to the published descent altitude at the first diversion airport. His failure to attempt an instrument landing system approach at that airport and his delay in declaring an emergency which resulted in fuel exhaustion and low instrument meteorological conditions. End quote. So, just let's look at these times again all together instead of you know more fragmented as we did as the the flight was actually occurring. He's near the Middletown Summit Airport when he decides to head towards Salisbury. That's at 4.50 in the afternoon. The plane crashed at 6.45. That's almost two hours that he spent diverting to different airports without being able to land. So between the hours of 4.50 and 6.45, he went from Middletown to Salisbury. That's going through two almost complete counties, and by the time he sets up um, the alignment through the GPS to try to land, it's not, you know, again, just flying time. There is a setup time um to approach the landing, and he did that twice. He then, after flying about 53 miles south, then heads north again to Georgetown, which is um 20 some miles. I would say about 20 to 25 miles. And again, he sets up a landing using precious time and fuel that he didn't have. After that, he has to head back again towards Dover. He asks about landing at Dover Air Force Base, and ATC correctly responds that he cannot land there unless it's an emergency. So instead of declaring an emergency, he flies past DAFB and is heading towards Dover Air Airpark. Par- Air I'm sorry, I do keep trying to say airport, but it's Airpark. However, he realizes that he is in an emergency and asks to be able to land at Dover by declaring an emergency. But at that point, it's too late and fuel has been exhausted. So what happened to make a man who is so meticulous, who is someone who thrives under pressure, make these types of mistakes. Period. Some might say that he didn't have a good understanding of the weather conditions for the whole area. And I'll have to agree to that. It may have been also an understanding of exactly where each airport was along the weather path. But no matter where he was, whether it was northern um, while approaching Middletown or to the south, he didn't seem to know that the weather conditions were approximately the same um, as far as, you know, visibility, the ceiling, um, as well as there were changes to the forecast, even in just a few moments from flying into, from one airport to another, there were significant changes that happened having an understanding of where he was and where he was going um, may have given him a better idea that the weather was not good along any of the flight path. If he realized, you know, he just flew from the south to north, what was the weather like south again since he was going to be flying back south? Why didn't he declare an emergency earlier on, even though he expected to have about five and a half hours worth of fuel. He was quickly approaching that time, realizing that he needed time to set up an approach, that it wouldn't just be, you know, again, to repeat, not a quick lineup and try to land. It does take time to fly an approach pattern. So why didn't he declare an emergency earlier, allowing him to fly into Dover from the south into Dover, as compared to flying past DAFB um, and then turning around once he realized he wasn't gonna make Dover Airport and have to fly back to Dover Air Force Base. I think we can find the answer to that in one of the memories or, I guess you would say reflections of a friend and colleague of his. In one of the memorials or articles written about him, Um, I'm going to quote for about a paragraph, a, a medium sized paragraph, of what a doctor observed through his friendship and time working with Dr. Turin. Quote Of all his accomplishments in orthopedics, Dr. Turin was most proud of his involvement in the training of so many surgeons currently in practice. On a personal note, Dr. Turin was old fashioned in many regards. He had high standards for himself and expected those around him to live up to those standards. For example, he wore a tie and jacket to work each day and was known to sentence the unfortunate resident caught outside the hospital in scrubs to two weeks in clinic. He valued honor, respect, friendship, loyalty, and surgical excellence and held those with similar values in the highest esteem. He was always available if you needed something. There was never, let me check my schedule, or I'm not sure, but let me get back to you. It was, when do you need me? For those of us who knew him well, when you ran into trouble at work, or more importantly, in life in general, and were not sure who to call, the answer was always, call Cliff. End quote. So Dr. Clifford Turin was a man who had a very high bar. He put a lot of pressure on himself, in my opinion, and not only himself, but those around him. When in a situation that would have shown that possibly he didn't have a good understanding of what was going on around him, or that he may have made um, questionable decisions earlier, I think think you know and again just to say this is my opinion i think that he was afraid to admit that he needed some assistance himself he needed the assistance of having to land at an air force base when he himself had served in the military had served at very high you know responsibility and positions and he did not want to have to admit that When it got to the very end, though, he was in a position where it was too little, too late. He realized he had to finally make that call to say it was an emergency. And by the time he did so, he wasn't able to make it back to that one safe haven that he had just bypassed not too much earlier. Looking at Dr. Turin's stellar career and achievements, It seems very sad to leave some of his legacy with this note, with the fact that maybe he didn't reach out for help when he needed it, that he may not have wanted to admit to mistakes that he had made. Let's take a look at some of the memory or legacy that he left behind. And yet another reflection on Dr. Turin's life Coming from Penn Orthopedics, I will read directly from that. Quote, with Dr. Turin's passing, we have lost a truly passionate educator, a dedicated and hardworking orthopedic surgeon, and a great friend. His impact and his legacy live on through the countless orthopedic trauma fellows and residents he has touched over the years with his commitment to the care of the injured. Dr. Turin will be greatly missed by all at Penn Orthopedics and our thoughts are forever with his family, End quote. And to continue his legacy of being an educator, there was also a fellowship made in his honor. To quote information about the fellowship, in memory of Clifford H. Turin, M.D., an extraordinary surgeon, educator, and leader, who made countless contributions to the field of orthopedic trauma surgery, the University of Maryland has established a fellowship endowment fund. The Clifford H. Turin MD fellowship endowment fund will honor the very best young trainees and renowned scholars in the field of orthopedic trauma surgery, providing support in two areas of utmost importance to orthopedic trauma professionals. Fellowships offer essential support to junior level faculty as they establish research careers, gain teaching experience, and provide patient care. This fund benefits top trainees in the field of orthopedic trauma surgery in a multitude of ways, supplementing salary, purchasing equipment, and paying for research expenses or professional travel. It is especially critical in today's challenging economic environment as few young faculty members qualify for salary and resource support from state and federal sources. The Clifford H. Turin MD Fellowship Endowment Fund will additionally support an annual lectureship in the field of orthopedic trauma surgery by covering travel and expenses for world renowned scholars to visit the University of Maryland. Lectureships are essential to the intellectual enrichment of the university and the scientific community at large because they provide the opportunity for scholars from other institutions to share their ideas and research findings at lectures and seminars. In turn, these guests learn from our faculty members whom they meet during the visit. End quote. So through these or through this endowment, doctor Turin's legacy will live on, so that while he died in this tragic accident, and while the investigation did put a lot of the accident factors onto the pilot, he was still a great man who contributed so much to the world of medicine, and to this day, his influence lives on in those that he taught, in the tools that he helped develop, and all aspects of medicine that his career touched. He also lives on with the patients that he helped heal and live a better quality of life by the surgeries that he performed. Thank you guys so much for sticking in to the end. I know it's a long episode, um, but I did want to discuss more about what he did since we had that information if you are interested in aviation, you know, like I said, I will have another episode about an aviation incident um, with a smaller craft on the Mystifyingly Missing podcast. It should be uploaded within 24 hours of this one being uploaded in case you want to take a listen to that. Hopefully it'll be less than 24 hours, but um, that was an interesting case as well. But it also shows the humanity of the doctor as well, that in in the um, accident on the Mystifyingly Missing podcast, he was going home from a family event from celebrating his father's 99th birthday. So it puts it on that human level as well, knowing you know, he had just spent time with all of his family. So that was about the other podcast will be about Dr. Richard Rockefeller. If you did want to tune into that a little bit um, later today or tomorrow, once I get it uploaded. I hope everybody has a great week upcoming. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.